Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we pull back the curtain of cybersecurity and shine a light on the people that are out there making a difference in security. To find out what drives them, motivates them, and dive into some of the events and exploits that have helped shape their careers. I'm your host, James Maud, and today's guest is without a doubt one of the most impressive guests we've had on the podcast. Biasilab, also known as Bianca Lewis, is a 16-year-old hacker, maker, and educator. She received national attention for hacking a voting system at DEF CON 26. Her work there was highlighted by the US Congressional Hearing on Election Security, and she's gone on to start Secure Open Vote Project to create a secure election system for the future. As if that wasn't enough, Biasilab is also founder and CEO of Girls Who Hack, an organization focused on teaching girls the skills of hacking so they can change the future. Bianca, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Not a problem at all. We're absolutely delighted to have you on here. And I know previously you've appeared in a Vice uh, documentary with our CTO, Mark Mayfrey. So great connection to uh, meet up with you there and get you on the podcast. Yeah, it's really cool. So we're going to start at the start, um, which scarily is not that long ago, but perhaps. But I understand you started learning programming when you were first in kindergarten. So what was that first experience in programming like for you? So back in my day when I was young, <laughs> I love making that joke. Um, programming when I was younger was really fun. I always loved to play with things like dolls and toys like that. So using Scratch was almost no different. But in this way, I could create the environment and what Scratch could do and play around with it that way. And then that led into me starting with Python and on from there. And how did you first get interested in Scratch? Was that through school or was that through home? Um, I don't know how it is now, but back in my day when I used to go to school, um, they didn't have any like coding classes or anything. Um, so my dad who works in cybersecurity programming and has worked in this all his life is like, I might as well start her off young and see if she's interested in it. And luckily, I was. And speaking of starting things young, you gave your first conference presentation at 10 years old. Is that right? 10, 11, around that age. Yep. And, and what was the, the topic? How did you, you come to speak at a conference? So it was besides Delaware back in how whatever year it was when I was 11, 16 now, do the math. <laughs> um, I did a talk on ciphers and secret codes and messages so that you can write secret codes to your friends and such. My biggest inspiration for that is, I don't know if any of you guys have um, heard of it or seen the show, but I loved Gravity Falls. And at the end of every episode of Gravity Falls, they would have a secret message at the end of the episode that you had to decode to get a hint of what's happening in the next episode. Highly recommend the show, even for you adults. And that was my biggest inspiration for doing that talk. And I did it and I just, I loved teaching people about things that interested me and maybe to see if they were interested in it as well. And that just kind of started my career, if you would call it that. That's fantastic. And one of the things that obviously people often talk about with first conference presentations is, you know, the fear of getting up in front of a group of people, imposter syndrome and all the nerves that, that come with standing up on a stage. Was that just something that came naturally to you or did you, were you nervous before you went up there? Um, I was born an extrovert, thankfully, so I was able to just go up there and be excited 
Um, I mean, before I do talks, I'm always still nervous. I'm nervous I'll mess something up, especially with my bigger talks, like my election talks. I don't want to get the facts wrong, because if I say something wrong, then people will be like, um, actually, that is not correct. And I guess it's maybe also a bit of a fear of the whole imposter syndrome thing, like, oh, she's just a kid. Of course she doesn't know this stuff for real. And I feel like if I mess up, then people are going to, see the man behind the curtain sort of kind of thing, if that makes sense. But in the end, once I get on stage, I kind of snap into this zone and I'm talking about what I love to talk about. And it's a subject that really interests me. And I think that's what really drives me forward. And is that kind of way where you've got into all these areas? It's just been something you've just followed your passions. These have been things that have been of interest. You mentioned your dad's in, in the cybersecurity industry. So you've obviously been exposed to some of the things. Are you just constantly like looking out at different technologies, different things and thinking, what could I do with that? Yes, definitely. The way I do talks is a little unorthodox. I pick a subject that interests me that I don't really know anything about at all, like election security. I put out for me to do a talk at like DEF CON, B-Sides, etc. If they accept the talk, then I learn about the thing, then make the talk. I don't know about the subject until my talk is accepted. Then I'm like, okay, now I have 30 days to learn about this subject and make a talk on it i think that's a that's a really fantastic approach actually that um just forcing your hand there to to dive into something that's of interest to you and i, I believe you were recently at um or last year def camp in romania how did that come about and, and what did you talk about there that was last year because it's just 2023 now um but it was only like i'd say a month or two ago um, I think it went pretty well. My talk was a sort of recap slash continuation of the talk I did two years ago at Def Camp or whenever that was because I've done two talks at Def Camp. And I think it went really well. There were no technical difficulties. I do have a little story for you if you want to hear it. Um, my first talk at Def Camp, um, my biggest talk at that time Slash maybe my biggest talk ever. I don't know. It was about the same size crowd for that Def Camp in this one. Um, I was in the middle of my presentation. I clicked to the next slide. It's the wrong slideshow. Right in the middle of my presentation. So I freeze up. And here is a trick for anyone who has to do a talk or presentation. Learn some corny, bad dad jokes. Because what I did while my dad ran over to switch out to the de a different uh, slide presentation was tell jokes. I, one of them was, what's a cow's favorite cheese? Mozzarella. Fantastic. <laughs> and I was on stage just cracking up these horrible jokes. But I think that really broke the tension instead of me standing on the stage like stiff sweating because I messed up. So little, little pro tip there. That's a fantastic chip. Do you know uh, what cheese you'd hide a horse in? What cheese? Mascarpone. <laughs> well, that's so bad. It's so good. There you go. So we're both now prepared for conference failures in, uh, in AV equipment and slide decks. Exactly. That's fantastic. So given that you've been talking about um, election uh, interference at these conferences and the security of it, Let's go back to how you first came to be involved in this area. And one of the stories we've got to talk to you about, obviously, is how you first gained national recognition hacking the voting system reporting system at DEFCON 26. So could you set the scene for us there? How did you come to be at DEFCON hacking voting machines? 
Okay, it was DEFCON 26. And I went to the Roots Asylum at DEFCON, which is the kids' asylum that they have for kids to have their own space, their own mini-con inside DEFCON where they can make badges, lockpick, etc. And they were holding a mock election system for us kids to try to hack and change the vote count using either like SQL injection or cross-site scripting, something along those lines. They gave us this little packet. We read through the instructions. First, it explained like what this attack is, why we're doing this, how the system works, and we got to do it. So I'm sitting there. All these kids range from ages like as young as seven, eight, until as old as maybe 14, 15. So it's this table of literal children hacking a mock election system when they could barely type on a keyboard without using just one finger. And all us kids were able to do it in under 15 minutes. I think that was the biggest awakening for me. Of course, being a kid, I was never interested in elections. I mean, it was always cool because elections are cool. I want to be president one day, that whole thing. But seeing how flawed this system is and how I, who could barely use a mouse in my tiny hand, was able to change the vote count, I'm like... How can the adults not figure this out? There has to be a better way to do this to make it more secure. And then I started doing research, watching documentaries and such. That's uh, when I did my first talk on election security, which wasn't the one in DEF Camp. I think it, I did it at DEF CON. Yes, at DEF CON. Um, that's when Congresswoman Mickey Sherrill of New Jersey saw my work and invited me to go to a congressional hearing on election security. At that hearing, I um, got to meet all the different congressmen and women before the actual hearing itself started and got to talk to them one-on-one -on, -one on their concerns and their questions and everything to do with election security. And I could see that they're politicians, but they know nothing about it. Absolutely nothing about it. No one really knows anything about how our system runs or anything like that. And after doing all this research and asking all these questions, I thought to myself, I can create a better system. And I wasn't thinking, oh, I can create a better system. I was like, oh my God, I can create a better system? Me, who's a kid with the resources I have versus massive multi-billion dollar companies that's when i started secure open vote my own end-to-end -end election system so far i have created the reporting system and i'm working on the registration system i brought the reporting system to defcon the next year to have people try to hack it and change the vote count because my system is fully open source everything's open try to hack it so that i know how to make it better instead of hiding all of my source code and being like, no, there's totally no back doors like some other companies do. <coughs> Diebold. <laughs> oh. So I brought it to DEFCON. No one was able to change the vote count. And people tried. So, so far it hasn't been hacked. So whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it right so far. But I'm praying and hoping that someone does hack it so I can make it even more secure. That's absolutely fantastic there that you've gone on that journey of going to a conference to, to, just because you're interested, seeing a challenge, getting involved in it, and then not only owning the challenge, getting the attention, 
get in front of politicians to highlight the problem. Like you say, you know, these are people who you'd think would be interested in these things and know them inside out. Yet there's a lot of just trust that these machines are, are secure and work and, and, you know, they are giving them the results. And then gone on to take that and say, well, why don't we open source this? Why don't we go through the thing, give some peer insight, take it to, to the conference? And I think one of the things that you said at the start there was, this was kind of on the kids track at the conference and it was set up as a as an engagement for the, the kids to do but you know we don't want to downplay that because that kind of techniques you were using there the sql injection was something that's highlighted in the Mueller report and other reports has actually been used by nation states against you know election equipment against voting equipment in the in the real world so it wasn't just some theoretical you know you've just clicked the easy button thing there it was actually based on the real world thing and then you've gone on to take that to the next level do you what do you you know you you allegedly mentioned a, a name there of a, a company that's involved in in voting systems do you think people place too much confidence in the security of these and there's not enough transparency around uh, electoral systems in general there is definitely not enough transparency um there's two big systems that uh, we use here in the US and there's like almost nothing else. It's these two systems, they make all the different types of machines that you see everywhere and run it all themselves. Um, both of them have their source code hidden and during the elections, they had to patch, quotation marks here, air quotes, patch the different machines and stuff last minute in all of the swing states only and they've done some shady stuff especially if you look like you said in the Mueller report and whatever um we don't know the full extent of the damage they've done but why hide their source code why hide everything that they're doing if they have nothing wrong or nothing to hide and it's been proven time and time again at defcon that these systems are so easy to hack. These machines are so easy to break. Uh, one DEFCON, they opened the voting machine village and they were able to pawn all of the machines in under 90 minutes. I've seen people play Doom, yes, Doom, the video game, on an election machine. Someone put my BIA Hack Lab logo on an election screen on an election machine. But the full extent of what you can do is absolutely ridiculous so a lot of the the time they're just relying on security through obscurity because they only allow people to access these machines for voting purposes they don't publish their source code they're very probably secretive about like you say patching and all the other things that are going on there so i'm guessing your general opinion there is even though you've highlighted the issues here that perhaps not a lot has, has changed since you highlighted those issues mm, no definitely not security isn't really their first priority because they don't have any real competitors since they are the ones being used everywhere. And um, I think people don't really think too much about this sort of election security because they think, well, I'm in my little booth, protected, all private by myself. I get to pick exactly what I want. And then that vote goes directly into some big batch of votes and they see who got the most votes. And it's, always buys because someone will say oh my person didn't win the elections were tampered my person won they weren't tampered it's all more personal than you would imagine 
Because if your person won and they're like, no, the elections were tampered with, you'd think, so my vote didn't matter? My vote doesn't count anymore? It's, it's really scary. Yeah, and I guess no matter which side of the, the political divide you fall on there, if there's that lack of transparency, it's going to breed suspicion, it's going to breed conspiracy, all these things out there. So I'm guessing from your, your the project you're working on is, is really focused on bringing that transparency, that openness to the voting system. That's the whole point of it being open source. And that's the point of me bringing it to all these places for people to try to hack it and change the vote count. I want all these hackers from different backgrounds and who know different skills, maybe developers who can help me develop it better or hackers that can destroy it and then tell me how I can build it up again. I want everyone's different opinion because if we all have the same interest in mind, which is a fair election, which I don't know if that's even truly possible. If we have that fair election, then... That's democracy. You're impressively cynical for your age. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very impressed with that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so you mentioned the project. You've started it. You've, you've taken part of it to DEF CON to be tested. What's the next stage in, in that project for you? If you want to build an election system that's going to be actually used in the U.S., you have to make the entire system. So you can't just be a company that creates the voting machines. You have to do the registration system and all the parts from start to finish. So working on every part one by one, figuring out the best way to connect them together, getting it tested. And I'm not sure the legal process of actually getting it used, but if I can get it used and approved by some board or something in the future, probably far in the future, maybe it being actually utilized in the US would be the biggest end goal. And have you looked at any systems outside of the U.S.? Have you talked to any people in any other countries about uh, rolling out secure voting systems? I have, actually. I talked to some um, people in Romania when I was there. And last time I was there, um, my grandma had to, since I'm half Romanian, my grandma had to go and vote in the election so I could see of course, the elections are different there because there's more parties and the way that their system works is different. Same for everywhere else around the world. So if I wanted to bring secure open vote around the world, I'd have to change the system. But as long as my morals stay the same, I can move my system anywhere for anyone who wants it. Oh, that's great that you get international interest in it and talking to all these people. Do you, do you speak Romanian if you're half Romanian? Yep, I'm fluent in Romanian. I basically grew up there, and I learned English and Romanian about the same time. So being bilingual is really cool. Ah, buena ziua. <laughs> buena ziua. Thanks to the, uh, the folks at Zenitech who uh, helped me out with that one. <laughs> Previously worked with some, some great people in Romania, so uh, great to hear that you've got a, a connection to, uh, to the region. So moving on from the, the voting system, one of the things that you've been doing is encouraging girls to hack that you know it's a niche area it's kind of security in general and there's you've been trying to drive that it's vastly underrepresented with women in general girls are often discouraged from doing these things or it appears to be that way so tell me about girls who hack and how you decided to start that organization 
Okay, Girls of Hack. I am currently wearing the Girls of Hack shirt. Find it on my website too. I'd like to show off the back. I don't know if you can see this very well. Can you see it? Uh, it says, for the people listening, no time for Barbie. There's hacking to be done. Fantastic. When I was around 13, I came up with that message for the back of the shirt. And I called my uh, dad from Romania. I'm like, dad, 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 this is very important. And I don't know what time it was here, but I think it was like asleep or something. He responded to the phone. He's like, what? what's going on? I'm like, I have an awesome quote. We need to put this on a t-shirt. And here's the t-shirt. Fantastic. And now it's available for other people to buy. Yeah, yeah. The real message behind Girls Who Hack is teaching girls the skills of hacking so that they can change the future. I started Girls Who Hack, I don't even remember when I started it, but years ago because I went to all these different conferences and I've tried all these different classes and I couldn't really find anything girl-focused. And even the classes that are like, anyone can come, I was the only girl in the room, the only kid in the room, usually both. Or there's like one other woman who's sitting all the way far in the back. And I'm like, where are all the women in tech? Tech is really interesting and cool. It's not just for hackers in their dark hoodies in their basement on their laptop with green numbers flowing down the screen like it's some kind of Matrix hacker movie. Where are all of these girls? And I started to realize as I did more and more classes that this is a really intimidating field. The thing about cybersecurity and just tech field in general is that it's endless. Even if you devote your whole life to it, every waking moment to learning everything there is to know, you wouldn't even get 5% of it. New stuff is coming out every day, new attacks, new patches, new machines, new technology. iPhone comes out with a new phone every two days. With all of this going on, it's such a scary field to get in, especially if you're the only girl in the room and you don't really have anyone you can partner up with and rely on. So I think that's the biggest discourager for girls. That's why I created Girls Who Hack, where I can do true beginner level classes for girls who want to start their journey in cybersecurity. My classes are focused around middle school to high school age girls. Um, you don't really need any background knowledge as long as you have a computer and a mouse, then you're good. But my biggest end goal, especially now that Girls Who Hack is an official non-for-profit as of late last year in October, woo -woo, um, is to take this show on the road. I want to go all around the U.S. bringing my classes to different people at libraries and schools and such. And the biggest problem there is the budget and the money <laughs> and equipment and such. Since these classes have like 15, around 15-ish girls, I need laptops and things. So if anyone is willing to donate to this cause, you can go to girlswhohack slash donate or just go to the Girls Who Hack website to read more about this and then help bring cybersecurity to the girls out there. That sounds like an excellent cause. And I'm sure there's there's lots of people listening in in various companies who uh, have laptops they could donate, time, equipment, money, uh, especially to donate to get you on the road and sharing that message because I think it's a really valuable thing um, to get out in the world and it's such a like you say it's such a rewarding industry to work in so many interesting things to look at 
that there's there's absolutely no reason anyone shouldn't be able to get into this industry and get get involved so that that's brilliant to see one of the the things obviously you self-identify as an extrovert and you're comfortable standing up delivering these classes getting involved learning to program and all these kind of things but that initial thing for someone so what would you say for a young girl who maybe is interested in joining a coding club after school or becoming involved in those things but is maybe feels a bit intimidated by being the the only girl or you know that, what what would you say to them to get them hooked on this area um having a good support system is really important i think reaching out to your friends and family and even if they can't or don't want to join the class with you maybe talking to them about like your concerns your problems or maybe just talking about what you've learned that day in your class or what you want to learn. They can encourage you to go to this class and do even more amazing things. Um, what really helps me, and this is just a personal thing, is before I go to a class, I like to have a little bit of background knowledge so I don't feel completely lost or blank usually. And this is really sad. Beginner classes, again with the air quotes, aren't really targeted at beginners and you end up having to google different words and look them up on wikipedia leaving you to wait what's this word what's this word what does this mean what does this do and it leads you in an endless loop of what's going on so getting a slight form of background knowledge that you can get from my website i have all my classes on there if you need some background knowledge um Getting some background knowledge before joining a class can give you a good, stable ground. There's endless resources and classes online as well that you can look at and get a little bit of background knowledge. Watch a few videos. Once you actually get into the class, you can feel more confident because you have that steady ground to go on. I think that's a, that's a great recommendation. And I know one of the things you mentioned in a previous interview is that being able to see something. Out, you know it's not just the the like I said the green console thing with the, the text flashing down it if you can in scratch you can make the cat move around you can create a game you can create an environment have you got any recommendations for people interested in maybe the hardware side of things the hardware side of things oh goodness um well a good place to start is definitely taking apart things and seeing how they work. One of my uh, favorite things at a lot of different conferences, mainly B-Sides does this, is they have this thing called Destruction Alley in the kids track, where people donate old broken machines, computers, monitors, keyboards, etc., for the kids to take apart with screwdrivers and things to see the different pieces and how these different things work together. And there's adults there and you can be like, What's this piece do? What does this do? Um, there's endless videos online and stuff where you can watch about different pieces and how they go together so that you can look at your own laptop. I say that um, with a warning. Be careful if you're going to take apart a machine. Just be prepared to maybe break something. <laughs> um, so taking those things apart. One fun thing that I really love and highly recommend to anyone um, as long as you're over the age of like five, is to try soldering. I actually have beginner soldering kits on my site with my uh, my logo, which is Fluffy McGlitter Sparkle, a cat design I created forever ago, where you can 
get a board and then add whatever you want to it. You can add different LEDs. You can make it make noise. Adafruit has a lot of great things on their site for beginners as well. Um, and soldering looks intimidating because it's a hot rod in your melting metal to connect pieces together. But as long as you don't breathe in the smoke and don't touch the hot part with your hand, which I have done once, ouch, then anyone can do it and I highly recommend. Then you can just create whatever projects you have in mind. Absolutely, and I think like say, uh, Adafruit's out there, there's lots of little boards and modules that you can start to, even if you're not soldering, potentially just plug together, but then also link in with, with the software. So you've got the Arduino boards and the Raspberry Pis and you can then see that physical outputs from the, the code you're writing, turning on the lights, turning off the lights, reacting to things. So really interesting area to get into. And I just, I just wish we, we covered more of these things in school. So I don't know if, is it, is it, was this ever been covered in your formal education, any of this programming or hardware or electronics? Um, well, we did have a computer class. I went to a, a small private school, so my experience is definitely different. And I know for a fact that most schools now, even public schools, have different coding classes. But back when I was in middle school, um, they did have coding classes, very, very beginner coding classes. Thankfully, my dad came in and created the coding club at my school, which was really fun to be part of. Having my dad be the teacher was a little weird, not going to lie. But it was cool to see all my other friends, and I even got some of the girls in my class to come and join it and be part of it. It was really fun. Um, I wish there was more technology in school since this is a field of work that is never going away. People are always like, robots are taking our jobs, but who's creating those robots? Whoever's creating those robots is the one who's always going to have a job. So technology being an endlessly big field, it's important to teach students in school about it. And now I'm homeschooled and I have been homeschooled uh, since the start of high school. I'm able to pursue all this knowledge in different topics, all things cybersecurity. I'm able to go to conferences that are during the week while kids are at school. So I can tell things are definitely harder for kids who have a tight school schedule. But I know that a lot of schools do have programs and after-school programs. You can look at your local library and you can even just try some online classes and online programs that you can do over the summer, like summer camp and such, with all things technology that you can look into. That's brilliant. And through your uh, Girls Who Hack, there must be a real good sense of camaraderie and community that you've built up with some of the, you know, online and physical classes and bringing people together with a with common interest. Have you found that, you know, you've made friends and great connections through that program as well as educating people? Oh, definitely. When I go to teach these classes, especially in relations to other groups like Girls Who Code, Willie Mae Rock Camp, etc., um, I they already have a strong community of girls who work together. And I see them raising up their hand, asking questions. They're not scared to make mistakes. They laugh with each other because they're not scared of being like, I'm the only girl because they're not the only girl. And they see me, a girl their age as the teacher. Then they're like, oh, that's that girl. That's like me. I can do what she's doing too. I can do talks. I can program things. I can hack things. And I think that's really powerful. One of the things I've seen you describe yourself as, as well as um, 
being extroverted is just an ENTJ personality type. Do you want to tell <laughs> us what that means to you and, and what it's all about? Um, so ENTJ is, um, I forgot what it stands for. I know the E is extrovertedness or whatever. Um, it's from the MBI uh, type test. There's like 16 main personalities and you can look it up online and take it yourself. Um, people with this personality type um, tend to be like leaders and um, extroverted people who uh, love like teamwork and creating things. And that's me. And I think the biggest thing with technology is that no matter your personality type, no matter your background, you can really become a part of it. Because maybe you're like me and you want to um, teach people about technology, whether it be being a teacher at a school or doing talks like me, um, or maybe you're more introverted and would rather become like a developer or something, someone who gets to work on their computer 90% of the time. Um, it's a very versatile field. And I think anyone from any personality type can find a side of technology they can truly resonate with. And mine just happens to be the middle ground between the people who know nothing about technology and then the people who know a lot about technology but don't know how to translate it to the normal people. <laughs> I think what was really interesting is when I, I did some Googling of ENTJ just to see what it was all about as a the personality test because it's quite a while since I've done anything like that. And the, the career matches that came up for your personality type were teacher, entrepreneur, and scientist which I thought kind of summed up the work that you've done and uh, lawyer as well. So, you know, you've got the legal aspect of the voting system there. So I thought that's um, really interesting that it, it uh, got you exactly right, I think, there and uh, puts you in the company of apparently Bill Gates, Patrick Stewart and Richard Nixon. So um, quite the dinner party there for ENTJ personality types, I think. Yep, a lot of cool people, including also some of my favorites like um, Cruella from Cruella DeVille. She's ENTJ. I don't know if you are a Marvel fan, but Hela, who is Loki and Thor's sister, who's one of the bad guys, she's the NTJ. A lot of villains. Right. I can see where this is going then for a future career path. <laughs> Including also Gordon Ramsay, which is always a fun one to tell about. But anyone who wants to take the test, it takes like 15 minutes and it's just really fun to see about yourself because it's always really accurate. One of the, the stereotypes, I guess, in the sort of hacking and cybersecurity industry is that everyone's an introvert and everyone's, you know, the uh, 200-pound hacker in the basement kind of thing. Do you think it, it gives you a bit of a superpower? <laughs> Everyone goes, mine goes to, like, uh, the IT crowd kind of people, like the nerd, the glasses, um, the people in the... That's <laughs> okay, glasses. Usually in their basement, on their dark, scary laptop, um, usually living in their mom's basement, about to crack the code and say big words that don't actually make sense together, like reverse the software, hardware, engineering of the 225, and just like random stuff like that. I think it has a big impact on media and how we're... Uh, portrayed and I go to people and they're like what are you interested in and I'm like cybersecurity I'm a hacker they're like are you because they're expecting something different I guess and I think this is the year to change that agenda and really show the world who we are 
Absolutely. And one of the things I've actually talked to guests on previous podcasts about is that, you know, we talk about there's a cybersecurity skill shortage, but what we've got a real shortage of in this industry is people who can tell the story of security, explain to those, you know, officials in government why it matters that this thing needs to be open source, needs to be transparent, why it matters that we need to do some security testing and get these things to places like DEF CON for people to try out. So I think that's that's really good and you've got you know a really good mission there of making sure that people don't just think you hide in a basement and do things that we need people out there shouting about these things and, and moving the conversation forward with the the normal people i think as you called them um and getting that going so we're starting to get toward the end of our time together here today but i just had a, a few final uh personal questions for you so who's inspired you on your journey so far I have an endless list, honestly, because everyone I've met in cybersecurity has been really supportive. And um, I think once you start talking even to like the introverts who would rather be alone, they go to these conferences like DEF CON and they're with people who are interested in the same things as them. You can walk up to anyone on their laptop and be like, hey, what are you doing? Can you show me too? Some of my biggest um, influencers, I think, actually, if I had to pick one, it would definitely be Lady Ada from Adverb Industries, of course. Um, I met her once at Hope years and years ago. Uh, she stood out to me mainly because of her pink hair, I must say. And I'm like, wait, what do you do? And she's like, well, I run my own company and I create awesome light up boards. Here's a board for you too. And that's how I got my first, I forgot what it's called, but it's like a circular board with different lights on it. And I'm like, I want to be like you when I grow up. I want to be like a strong, independent woman with awesome pink hair who has her own company and is really cool. And then that same year I dyed my hair and started my company. That's fantastic. I don't really want to necessarily say friends because we're not that close, but she's definitely been a big mentor to me and I've loved every conversation I've had with her. And if anyone has the honor of meeting her, you'll agree with me that she is an amazing person. Absolutely. I've never had the chance to meet her, but I've been a big fan of, of her work, the tutorials that they put out there, the hardware that they build for people, the NeoPixel things to play with. I have a, the drawers behind me are full of little bits of Arduino and Adafruit circuits and things. So absolutely it's it's definitely worth looking um lady ada and the work that that her company does there because it's fantastic and um if there was a misconception do you think people your age have about being a hacker what do you think it is that it's a bad guy thing that hacking is a bad thing and i adults believe this too but i think they know a bit more about it but usually that when i say i'm a hacker they're like what have you hacked have you like hacked video games that's a that's the number one question I always get, especially from younger kids, is like, have you ever hacked a video game? And that hackers are bad guys. And I'm like, you can do all these hacky things as a good person too, to help people create better, stronger systems. Brilliant. And what do you think? So in terms of like hacking covers such a variety of things that, you know, like you say, there's a misconception that hackers are the bad guys and it's it's computer code, but hacking traditionally is just, exploring things isn't it it's just taking things apart so what's an area that you haven't looked at yet that you're really interested in getting stuck into at some point one thing i've been interested in especially since it's on the topic of elections as well 
I've always been interested in, and I have done talks on it, on, uh, like, social engineering slash um, psychological warfare kind of style things. Um, one thing I don't understand, and I wish I knew more about, was things like deep fake and creating fake photos and videos that are scarily realistic. So AI-generated art. I know that's a uh, big trend right now on like TikTok and such is AI generated art and videos and how you can create a video of I don't know like Putin doing the renegade or whatever um but that but malicious terms that's something I'm really yeah. interested in is all of that being used because I get questions on that every time I do my election talk is like oh what about deep fake how does that work? How can you tell if something is a deep fake video? And I do have answers for those questions, but they're a bit more vague and I'd like to have a more strong set answer. And uh, you strike me as someone who has multiple projects on the go at once. So what's left on your to-do list at the moment? Um, other than taking like Girls Who Hack show on the road, it's continuing my election system and just continuing all these projects that I've worked so hard to start up. And now that the con craze is over for a little while, I actually have time to sit down and work on all of these without being like, okay, now I got to make this talk and practice it, then go do it. Okay, now I have to do this talk and then this talk, and I don't get a chance to actually do the things. Now I can explore more things, work on more things, so I have things to talk about when con season starts up again, which I can't wait for. And as we wrap up here, is there anything else you wanted to get out into the world? Any messages you wanted to share with people before we uh, round this off? Um, nothing really, but hack the planet. Hack the planet indeed. No, that's a, a great way to end that. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been fantastic to talk with you about the work you've done so far. Really excited to see you take things to the next level, become the evil Cruella villain uh, in charge of hacking at your own companies. Um, really thank you for taking the time to talk to us today it's been uh, it's been brilliant to speak to you thank you so much for having me this was super fun thanks for listening to the adventures of alice and bob podcast don't forget to rate review and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it